I think where I do not see seriousness is the ability to understand that the Chinese program for space resource utilization, their thinking of the Earth-Moon system is in such a grand scale that it is not being able to be thought through uh, and not understood for what it means, even in terms of dual-use capability that can be developed from that. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, and welcome back, Downlink listeners. Before we get to this week's episode, I apologize for not producing a podcast last week. I got hit with COVID and have been battling it ever since. You can hear it in my voice. It is such a drag. But anyway, this week, we're catching up with the latest developments in space and defense from the Far East or Western Pacific, depending upon how you look at it. Earlier this month, China revealed that it has a plan for developing facilities for communications, logistics, mining, and in-situ resource utilization for the solar system, not just the moon or Mars. Also this week, the U.S. Space Force Chief of Space Operations General Chance Salzman met with Japanese Defense Minister Minoru Kihara. They discussed just how they would deepen cooperation between the Space Force and Japan's Self-Defense Force's Space Operations Squadron. And the CSO said they're discussing establishing a U.S. Space Force base in Japan. And we're going to talk about North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, and his one-on-one visit with Russian President Vladimir Putin. That first meeting was held at Voschany Spaceport in Russia's Far East. Joining me is Namrita Goswami and Christopher Stone. Here's our conversation. Hello, Namrita and Chris. Thank you for coming on the Downlink Podcast. Thanks very much. Before we get started, let's do a quick round of introductions. And Chris, why don't you start? Sure. I'm Christopher Stone. I am a senior fellow for space deterrence at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies in Washington, D.C. I am also a former special assistant to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy and a frequent author. And Chris, didn't you just have a piece in Defense News on Silent Barker? You know, want to take a minute and give the audience a taste of that? Sure. So in uh, Defense News, I had an op-ed that came out uh, yesterday about um, what a lot of people in senior leadership have been using the phrase to describe Silent Barker as a deterrent. And what is Silent Barker, real quick? Silent, Yeah, Silent Barker is basically a neighborhood watch system for geosynchronous Earth orbit. So it looks down on the on the belt of satellite and operations below that to provide uh, situational and domain awareness. And people were saying, because we have eyes on, we have deterrent against aggression. And my argument was, is it's it's helpful, but it is not a deterrent in and of itself. And I go through what makes a deterrent um, and what we need to add to that in order to have real deterrence against aggression in space. And just for everyone, uh, Silent Barker is a satellite that is up in geostationary orbit, and I believe it is uh, owned and run by the NRO. Am I correct in that? 
It's a joint Space Force NRO constellation. There are three of them up. They launch ah. three at a time. It's at Geo, but it's over. But any, anyway, wherever it is, it's up in Geo and it's looking down. And Nami, take a moment and introduce yourself. Sure, Laura. So my name is Namrita Goswami, and I teach at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University. And uh, I am co-author of a book called Scramble for the Skies, the Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. Delighted to be here. Thank you both for joining me. So now on to China. Earlier this month, Wang Wei, who is a scientist from the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, he laid out China's plan to construct facilities, not just planting flags here, but to extract, ship, and use resources from the moon and asteroids and beyond. It's being touted as China's plan for the solar system. And Wang says the facility should be in place by the turn of the next century. The plan kind of reminds me of what China's doing today in the Spratly and Parcel Islands and the Scarborough Shoal. And the name for this plan comes from the title of an encyclopedia written during the Ming Imperial Dynasty. The encyclopedia and the 21st century space logistics plan are called the Exploitation of the Works of Nature, or Tiangong Kaigu. And notably, the encyclopedia not only covers agricultural and nautical subjects, but also the production of firearms and landmines and naval mines. So is anyone in the U.S. government picking up on this? And how is or perhaps should the U.S. approach this, you know, the need to protect U.S. interests in the cislunar region and asteroids? You know, what's at stake? Chris, I think you should start this one. <laughs> That's funny, given the the, per, the other person is the author of books on the topic. Um so I think oh, I think. Wait a minute! You're both <laughs> authors of books on the topic. Don't well, even. She, she has more books than me. Um, she's more. She's more well read. Oh, anyway, don't worry. She's going to jump in. I'm sure <laughs> I'm of that. Sure. Yeah. So so what I whenever I see that, um, I'll just mention one thing. Whenever I see people make arguments about about China's uh, plans, even you know, yes, as you said correctly, they are similar to what that they've said about their South China Sea activities. And all the different island chains, and they use they've, there's there's been quotes from from all sorts of senior Chinese folks that have been using that analogy for for Earth orbit space and beyond, and and their their quest for dominance in the cislunar region. But and this all is the for the solar system. This plan. Oh, I know, I know. And so w because of that, everybody who says, "Oh, this is a future thing," um, I always like to tell people that this is a lot sooner than you think. And whenever the Chinese make a, a plan with years, um, specific years mentioned, or at least decades, um, usually they're within one or two years of, of their actual scheduled time frame. So while a lot of people in the United States and even some of our allies like to like to kind of say, oh, yeah, that's a future problem, um, it doesn't really do us any good from a strategic or, or military standpoint or even from a commercial standpoint to viewed as a, as a future problem that needs to be ignored while the Chinese continue to progress. So I'll just start with that um, as something that constantly uh, I hear and constantly I have to refute. Oh, go on, Nami. I know you have something to say. <laughs> uh, well, um, I, I really agree with Chris. And also, I think one thing when you look at Wang Wei's 
presentation that he gave to the Beijing Conference on Aeronautics. So first of all, who is he? He's a senior scientist with the China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation. And they have been working on this project for the last three years, according to the South China Morning Post article that led to this entire quotes being repeated in other mediums as well, right? So if you look at the plan, what is uh, interesting to me is that Uh, The plan consists of identifying certain stable gravitational areas between the Earth and Moon, Earth and Sun, by which they mean the Lagrange points, where they want to use that as a pit stop to develop, as you said, capability to then be able to uh, develop the technology for resource utilization that would include the Moon as the first pit stop. Where and water in situ I- resource use, utilization too, not just yeah. to bring it back to earth, but to do every, I mean, facilities to manufacture. Yeah, that's, what, that's what I was getting at. So the Sorry. first stop, of course, the moon <laughs> with water ice. And then what the idea is that then they will utilize asteroids as well for in situ resource utilization. So the idea is that you build this entire end to end capability that will enable China to build and matured the system by 2100, right? But for someone like Chris and me who have studied the Chinese space program, this is nothing unique. This has been the conversation from China's space scientists, as well as from Wu Wering, who's the chief designer of China's space program, for several years now. So they have been talking about utilizing the moon for water ice. Uh, Wu Wering even talks about helium-3 for nuclear fusion capability. Uh, resources like uh, aluminium, titanium for the development of China's deep space probes. So this is a continuation of the conversation that has been existing in China since 2002. So the interesting part about the current presentation is that it clearly lays out that particular plan and forwards a very senior scientist and projects thinking on how it's going to go about I'll just add one more thing, Laura, as another analogy. If, if people um, who looked at China beginning their, their big rise in the early 90s, late 80s, if you had said to people, if we had go back in time and tell them that the Chinese are going to have uh, the majority stake in most of the world's supplies of rare earth metals, they would probably look at us like we were nuts. But that's exactly where they are. And the fact that they're planning this activity in addition with other, you know, other energy and other types of resources, such as solar power and things, to try to get ahead of the other powers of the earth, um, it's not it's not necessarily intended for goodwill. So, so we got to keep that in mind that that you know just because it doesn't sound logical in our mind doesn't mean that it's not totally logical and makes total sense for a country of that size and with the type of goals they have geopolitically. So back to my original question then, you know, is anyone in the U.S. government picking up on this? I mean, the pieces seem to be coming together again in a similar way to the, you know, the Spratleys and the Parcel Islands out there. This seems to be a, a pretty solid plan that they're going to be using a similar ideology and a similar way of going about their business in space. I mean, is anyone in the government thinking about this from what you're hearing? I mean, I would say that uh, it depends on where you're looking, right? So if you look at the uh, Department of Defense, there is a hesitation to include cislunar as part of the operational conceptualization where the Space Force needs to go. Uh, I also know that within the Space Force itself, uh, there is 
the viewing of space from support to Earth operations, so it ends in geosynchronous space. And cislunar space, while seen as uh, a domain that needs to be thought about, is not thought about as core requirement today. So that's very clear. Now, when you look at the conversation outside of, say, the Space Force uh, to the U.S. government, I mean, uh, in all fairness, the U.S. government does have a lunar program called Artemis Accords, as your audience would know, that focuses on developing capability through bilateral partnerships that just included Germany now as the 29th nation to sign it, uh, that focuses on resource utilization, building permanent capability, thinking about space from an economic perspective, including under former administrator Jim Burdenstein, there was the effort to prove the first business case as well, right, which iSpace tried to do, but failed in the last few seconds. So we already do have a program that is thinking about space from a resource utilization perspective. I think where I do not see seriousness is the ability to understand that the Chinese program for space resource utilization, their thinking of the Earth-Moon system is in such a grand scale that it is not being able to be thought through uh, and not understood for what it means, even in terms of dual-use capability that can be developed from that. For example, a, a cislunar space situational awareness capability, relay satellites that help China communicate. Uh, the fact that they want to now send humans to the moon by 2030 would mean they would be building their Long March 10, which is their human landing system, right? And they're trying to make the Long March 9 uh, reusable as well to scale up their uh, plans that Wang Wei talked about. So, uh, I don't think I don't see that seriousness, unfortunately. I'll add just I was at a I was at an event last week in D.C. where I was asked to be a speaker. And um, afterwards, I it wasn't about China, but it was still about, you know, competition and and things of that sort. And energy was the one of the prime topic areas. And afterwards, I had folks from the DOD and the Department of Energy come up to me wanting to discuss some of those issues I raised early uh, in the presentation later on more in depth. Um, so while I haven't seen anything broad, strategic level, unified pushing in the direction that is clearly a counter to that kind of development of capability from a standpoint of hardware and not just signing documents, um, there is seems to be some interest in the government that did not that was not there 13 years ago or even five years ago that people like me have been trying to raise awareness of and same with with my cohort here and it's just now they're they're starting to slowly come into some ideas that okay this is probably a real thing since they're actually planning to build cislunar infrastructure in the next three to five years so Let's wait till they're building hardware, and then we'll we'll do something more than just send a Artemis mission every two to three years. I think that's probably something that we should be thinking about. So there are there is some percolation going on, but I haven't seen anything broad and widespread yet. What yeah, I find and really I think- interesting about your your answers here is that we've really been talking about the the cislunar region and 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 that is now and it is happening now and it is exciting but what i find really interesting about the china plan is that it it goes well beyond the cislunar region i mean we're talking you know asteroid belts we're talking about you know gravity points that are like lagrange points but 
solar system type level Lagrange mm-hmm. points that they're looking for, that this goes well beyond the moon and L1, L2, all of that. And mm-hmm. that's, I understand that the Artemis Accords does have a future view about going towards Mars, but there's not like a view that goes beyond. And that's, that's what I find so interesting about uh, what's, what's coming out of what, well, what China is saying, that they're thinking about the solar system, not just the cislunar system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just throw in there. I, what's kind of sad in a way is the way the Chinese are viewing space right now is the way the United States viewed space about 60, 70 years ago, where the ideas of you know conquering space and worlds unknown, being able to build systems that could go to Saturn, things of that sort with people on board, you know, having a, having moon bases by the 60s, army projects, air force projects, everybody was thinking big thoughts. Um, and we, I guess, maybe just decades of big thought people being hammered to the ground by near-term requirements type thinking has stunted what the United States could have been doing by now. We could have had a long way in advance uh, capability and presence than we do right now. I mean, you know, it is great that the United States is the only country in the world that has sent unmanned vehicles to every major planet and dwarf planet in the solar system, brought back stuff from asteroid belts, wind of the sun and everything, and even have two probes operating in interstellar space. But the fact that they're wanting to do it with people, it's it's very similar to what we used to be like. And so I, I'm hoping that we can see a little bit of that that vision restored by the Chinese kind of kicking us in the pants a little bit. Yeah, I would add to that by saying that the one thing that strikes me as interesting about China's plans, and again, as I said before, this is not new, Uh, including concepts like going to the solar system, developing asteroid mining. Uh, And what is uh, important is that uh, in this kind of thinking has been there and projects have been funded by the China Academy of Sciences for a very long time. Right. And but the important point, which uh, this presentation also highlighted, was that China is viewing the investment in space resource utilization using the moon, using gravitational area slots, uh, going out to the asteroid belt as contributing to the economic development of China, right? So if you listen to the presentation and whatever was quoted, uh, the most important thing I thought was the presenter saying that this is going to be game changing for power dynamics on Earth as well if China is able to access these resources, right? This is something our book talked about as well, including the chapter on China. So this is further vindication that they are getting more and more serious about this kind of uh, investment in space resource utilization. So now let's shift our focus to another East Asian spacefaring nation that's having its own security challenges with China, and that's Japan. September has been a very busy month for Japan, space and defense. There's been a launch by the Japanese Space Agency, which hopes to place a lander on the moon. And the U.S. Space Force Chief of Space Operations, General Chance Salzman, was just there a few days ago meeting with Japanese Defense Minister Minoru Kihara. They spoke about establishing a space force base there to better coordinate with Japan's self-defense forces. Namreta, you've been following these developments closely. 
what do we need to know? Sure. So uh, if you look at uh, General Salzman's uh, visit, as well as the kind of focus that was highlighted during this particular uh, visit, I think the idea is to build even closer collaboration, for example, in regard to space domain awareness, a term that uh, Japan insists should be used and not space situational awareness. I think to build better interoperability between the U.S. Space Forces and Japan's Space Domain Mission Unit. Uh, Japan established the first uh, space uh, operational squadron uh, in 2020. And in 2022, they actually established the overseeing body called the Space uh, Operation Group. And so the idea is that through this press conference, as well as the visit, it's becoming clear that Japan views its uh, partnership with the U.S. as extremely critical given the challenge they see from China. So if you look at the explanation for why Japan even uh, constituted a space domain unit in 2020, the idea was that it is really critical for Japan to have the institutional structures to be able to create even better strategic convergence with the United States. So that was very clear. And so this visit and the fact that the U.S. Space Force is thinking of uh, establishing a presence there. I think the first presence was established in South Korea. And so now Japan being included, uh, this is going to be a very critical dimension of Japan's strategic focus as well. And all this was very clear. I'll end there. So if you look at the 2018 National Security Strategy, as well as the 2022 National Security Strategy and the Defense Guidelines, Japan has now included space as a very critical cross-domain operational capability. And so this means that Japan is going to invest in building skill, uh, invest in building military space capability that might include counter-strike, which could even include Japan's own anti-satellite weapon capability in the future. So these are the kind of insights I get uh, viewing the particular visit. You mind if I weigh in a little bit, Laura, on that? You know so, I want you to. Cool. So here's the thing about Japan that's kind of interesting to me is that they've come a long way. I know as as we've just heard some of their historical development, but really when you look at, at the, the top two leaning forward the most allies, I would say Japan is probably the le- the most forward leaning other than India in, in the Pacific region. Um, as she mentioned, with weapon systems and being able to defend themselves and to be proactive and have indigenous launch and all sorts of good stuff. And then in, in Europe, probably would be France would be the, the farthest leaning ahead on actual, no kidding, active defense and, and offensive capability that can be leveraged by alliances and, and partnerships. Um, I think that is is great to see our friends in, in uh, uh, that part of the world considering it and keeping it important. I'll also mention with regard to the Space Force having a component there, um, while it is, you know, a big deal in the sense that we're expanding our space partnerships, um, as someone who has worked with the Japanese in the past and a little bit with the South Koreans, um, you know, they are very interested in this field. They they understand how important it is um, to, to counter the Chinese threat in particular, but others across the planet. And they're very important to that. But as, as the Space Force is doing components, they're basically acting like any other service would. The Air Force has a numbered Air Force in, in Japan, Fifth Air Force. 
they have one in, in Korea, the Seventh Air Force, and then they have the broader one, the Thirteenth Air Force, in uh, or at least they used to. I'm pretty sure they still do. Um, that are that are focusing on different pieces of of the threat area, and the Space Force makes total sense that they would have space experts and capabilities able to be supportive of those allies, those alliances, and those partnerships in the region. So it's all goodness, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. And also in the region, let's take a second to look at what's been happening in the Koreas. When North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un visited Russia, he met up with Russian President Vladimir Putin at a cosmodrome. Chris, that would seem pretty significant, no? Well, I mean, it's it's indic- indicative, I think, that the that North Koreans have been trying to have their own launch capability, um, their own missile capabilities, frankly, um, because, frankly, missiles are the only way that they they can threaten uh, with any distance of, you know, force projection with distance. And uh, they've launched a couple things into space, but their satellites just haven't worked. Um, there have been concerns about their satellites, the North Koreans, um, potentially testing low flyers for electromagnetic pulse uh, strikes, given the, the ability to, to launch heavy payloads is just not something they have. Um, the Russians have been helping them, along with the Chinese, for quite some time, as, as it's been reported in the open press, whenever Japan fishes out pieces of North Korean missiles that have flown over their heads, typically they find components that were made in China or Russia um, inside those vehicles. So the fact that they're being, you know, shown around Vostochny Cosmodrome, which is their Far East launch site that's supposed to take the place of their Baikonur Kazakhstan location eventually, um, I think is important, especially from from the North Korean perspective, as, you know, as the Russians start to try to get their feet back under them in space after several mishaps and failures, um, I think that they believe, they being North Korea, believes that that's their best their best ticket uh, to to be relevant and, and to join in that that growing BRICS counter block that China and Russia are trying to build as as a counter counterweight, not only to uh, the United States on Earth, but also the United States and its allies push into space as well. Yeah, I think I'll add to that by saying that what I found interesting in that visit was that. Uh, Putin gave an indication that Russia might help North Korea build a military satellite and launch it, so which which uh, uh, Kim Jong-un wants and has not been able to do, as Chris was mentioning. The second important thing, which I don't think the media picked up, was that uh, Putin also gave indications that he might help launch the first North Korean astronaut into space on a Russian Soyuz capsule. And what is even more interesting is that they are thinking that once they launch that, the Soyuz capsule will then dock with the Tiangong space station and uh, two Russian cosmonauts and a North Korean astronaut will be able to then stay in that particular space station, which exactly builds into what Chris is pointing out, that there is a strategic alignment forming and if that happens and a North Korean astronaut actually goes and uh, stays with a, with Russian cosmonauts in the Tiangong space station, that clearly indicates where China is also betting uh, in the future. So it's about space technology. It's about promises that Russia might help launch a military satellite, which North Korea wants to have. And I think it builds into that particular alignment structure as well. 
And lastly, I want to share something that's been on my mind recently. And in August, just before India landed um, on the moon, Russia made an attempt and failed to land on the moon. And then, you know, India did make it. And before the end of this year, two U.S. space companies, Intuitive Machines and Astrobiotic, have two separate moon lander missions on the books for launch. We've got multiple commercial space stations in the work, and now three asteroids have been visited by robotic spacecraft. I feel like the space economy and therefore national interests in space beyond Earth orbits are multiplying and quickly. And, and this could be developing faster than U.S. leadership on the Hill or in the White House recognize. And it's only been very recently that we've heard the Department of Defense mention cislunar space. You know, perhaps I'm making too much of this, but what would be your number one policy priority to meet the challenge that is definitely developing beyond geostationary orbit? And Nami, why don't you go first? You put me on a spot there. So I was trying to think as to what would be my first space policy priority. I think well, my it wouldn't f- be any fun if I couldn't put you on the spot sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you do. That challenges me. So, uh, well, so the... I think my first recommendation would be that uh, the U.S. needs to be much more bolder and much more clear as to why cislunar space is important for the United States and for its partner nations. So I think that has to be made very clear. Why is the moon critical at all? And given the fact that there are so many nations, including partner nations like India and Japan, who is on its way to the moon. So that's number one. I think the language still continues to be very much focused on space exploration, space science, without really recognizing that partner nations are looking at space lunar resources, confirming their presence like the Chandrayaan-3 did with sulfur and other minor elements, as they point out. Japan is on its way to the moon and and is going to demonstrate a pinpoint lander technology that is going to bring down the uh, bring bring the cost down. The Japanese mission is about $100 million, but also an ability to land where you want to land and not where you think it's safe to land. That's going to be a big contribution, as Japan says, to future missions as well. So that's number one, recognizing that partner nations are going beyond the U.S. narrative. The second policy recommendation, and I'll uh, give the floor to Chris after that, is that You know, if you look at the U.S. Space Force narrative as well, including presentations on General Salzman, there is a lot of focus on first mover advantage. So it's always repeated that we need to have first mover advantage. But then when I probe deeper, I I realize that this does not include cislunar space at all. It includes low Earth orbit, geosynchronous orbit building some level of first mover advantage there with satellite constellations, proliferated LEO constellations. But there is no imagination that first mover advantage goes beyond just uh, Earth's orbit. So my second recommendation is that when you're thinking about a space ecosystem and building capability, it is really critical to think both support, which is important from a Space Force perspective, but also missions that it might be called upon to do. For example, if there is American presence in the, on the moon, the U.S. Space Force might be called upon to respond to disaster or some level of activity where its intervention might be required. So that's my second recommendation. Have a much larger um, strategic mapping of what are important areas for operational 
and training capability development. Okay, so I guess um, for me, I would have, I guess I have three that come into my mind. The first one is overarching the United States government and its people. We need to dispense with our post-Cold War mindset. We need to dispense with our post-Cold War priorities. And we need to understand that we are not living in the 1990s anymore. And as a result of that, we need to understand that maybe we need to let the states handle more of the domestic issues and the U.S. government needs to be using its resources um, more for the protection of strategic U.S. and allied interests uh, in key um, battleground areas to include um, space-related regions. If we really um, have created the Space Force and U.S. Space Command to get after the threat that is in space, then we need to acknowledge it, that it is real by committing some resources and some seriousness to it. And that leads to number two, which is currently current policy and current unified command plans have U.S. Space Command acting like a functional support command with uh, everything focusing on terrestrial this, that, and the other, instead of what it's originally was created to deal with, which was 100 kilometers and up. Its area of responsibility is space. It is not planet Earth. It is supposed to be the largest AOR, to use former General Shaw's astrographic terminology. And as a result of that, you need to have commanders with that mindset. You need to have requirements that meet that mindset and understand the reality of our adversaries and a strategy that's, that's based upon that. Thirdly, a way to get after that and catch up on some of the time that we've lost is we need to also dispense with whatever is behind this, this mentality that has been quoted in the press from some government officials um, that they want to restrain and constrain the commercial space sector, specifically Elon Musk and SpaceX. And so you're seeing a lot of people that are getting a little concerned with FAAs, you know, constantly slowing down Starship Super Heavy. Um, with more regulations and more changes and more updates. And everybody's for safety and everybody's for all that. But you have a lot of people that are wondering, like, why do we need to slow them down for when they're the ones that are making things happen? Um, and they're serving as the model creator for the military, such as Starlink is the model for a lot of future um, architectures that Space Development Agency is looking at, um, as well as the Super Heavy is bigger than SLS, and if their, their, their economic scale and modeling works, it'll be able to fly a whole lot more often for a lot more uses than SLS. Now, I'm a big fan of both of them, so I want to see both of them succeed. But I think if we want to not be left in the dust um, by a China who clearly, as, as Nami wrote in one of her, her testimonies in 2019, they're looking for economic and military dominance. They're not looking for... A, a seat at the table or a a place on on the, the the company of nations just you know having fun together in peace and harmony they're wanting to be the lead entity um, we need to keep that front and center and treat it seriously so that's what I would I would advise Chris Nami thank you both so much for your time thank you very much thank you for having us 
That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.